with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. And coming up, we will have half an hour of business news and analysis. In today's program, we'll talk about OPEC Plus decides to cut oil production starting from next month. What does it mean for the energy crisis? And we will also take a look at the top 500 Chinese enterprises. Who is on the list this year? And now let's begin with our top story. The world's most powerful oil producers, OPEC Plus, have agreed to a modest cut in output starting from next month. The move has made the price of oil volatile and surprised the markets at a time of energy turmoil. The alliance says September's increase of 100,000 barrels per day won't continue into October. So why did OPEC Plus decide to cut the output now, although the amount is very small? And will it have any practical impact. For more on this, join us on the line now is Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow at the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation, and also Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. So first, Aina, OPEC and its major allies agreed to modestly cut the oil production, and this is rolling back the increase they made one month ago. So why are they doing this now? Well, the actual cut is uh, 0.1%, and the reason they're doing it is if you look at the global uh, usage of oil and the glo- global production, you'll see that the, the two lines actually meet. The, the problem that uh, it, the world has today, and the reason you see these spike increases, is that the distribution is an issue. Logistics have been uh, severely impacted because of uh, you know all the shipping uh, things, the strikes, uh, COVID, you name it. And as a result... Uh, it's just harder to get it there. But uh, OPEC does not want to see, be in a position where it increases output and that uh, you know, basically pushes oil prices down. They want to maintain a fairly sta- stable level. Uh, I think when the market realizes that this, uh, most of the costs are associated with transportation, it will settle down. And Dr. Joe, so as Ina mentioned, the trim is very small. It's only 0.1% of global demand. So what practical impact can this move have? Yes, for the practical impact of the prices change, I think it uh, depends on the, the expectation of the market because the people believe that uh, OPEC will continue to decrease its output in the further in the further months because it's they didn't see a very big increase of the prices they, they can still do that actually i have to mention that we are looking at the data itself when they pronounced that, that they were trying to to have some uh, certain amount of oil actually they haven't reached that goal so when even talking about the 100,000 barrels they haven't reached that in July and August. So it's just a kind of imagination or a target that they are sending a signal to the to the market. So the market will know what OPEC will do in the future. Mm. So the market actually go volatile. So Aina, how do you explain it? 
I mean, this is sh- uh, short pricing. People are, are concerned. Uh, you always have an emotional reaction when the market is uh, surprised, and they were, in fact, surprised. They thought they would uh, maintain you know, a level, maybe a modest increase. These producers don't not want to be in a position where they're producing more than they uh, can sell. Uh, they're very aware of where we are in the economic cycle. The oil price actually went up and down on the international benchmark indices, and the European Union has outlined the plans for caps on the wholesale gas prices. So, Ina, what are the reasons for And could you please tell us more about the details about the EU move on this? Well, the EU move on this on this thing this is purely political. They they really can't put a cap on it. They don't produce. They don't control production. They can say we're going to put a cap on it. Uh, some uh, nations are saying, well, we'll put a cap on it, and and, and we'll in essence uh, subsidize. Uh, that's fine. But you know, whatever you do, uh, there's only so much gas, uh, and that's really the issue here. It's not oil. Mm-hmm. Uh, coal is of course going up. But the you know the, the issue is that you're taking it away. So if I use it, that means you can't use it. It's a zero sum game in that particular aspect. And the, the ones who are going to suffer most are those in the developing countries who just simply don't have the money uh, to compete with their European neighbors who are much wealthier. So mm. it's going to be very difficult for the Europeans, but it's going to be more difficult for developing countries. Mm. And Dr. Joe, so what do you think about the details about uh, the EU's move on the wholesale gas prices? I think that we are talking about the natural gas. It's a, a lot of relationship with the crude oil. So when they are having to depend a lot on the electricity, on the different kinds of resources, they have to choose carefully about what they can do. In this way, they are putting some caps on the on the price of the natural gas. We are not do good for the stability of the prices. So when they are putting some caps that uh, the sellers, maybe they want to sell the natural gas to other countries, or they prefer not to produce any of them. And in that will bring much worse impact on the supply of the, the natural gas, will put the economy in a lot more dangerous position. Mm. And Dr. Joe, earlier the G7 also announced a plan to implement an oil price cap against the Russian oil imports. So it's easy to say, but could it be easily implemented? I don't think it's a very easy task to reach because that all the economies of the G7, they, although they are all developed countries, if you look at Japan, they have to dependent dependent a uh, lot on the import of the crude oil from other countries, the Middle East, and also some of them from Russia. So they are, if they are putting some oil cap, uh, if they are putting some oil price cap, it means that they will not only limit the import from from Russia itself, but also trying to affect trying to affect the international market because that uh, the the market is over there and uh, the oil is over there. They don't have any other choices, so they have to import more from other countries, which the OPEC Plus may believe that they were trying to reduce some of that because they can have a much better position in the pricing. Mm-hmm. So, Aina, for the energy crisis, including both oil and gas this year, how did the U.S. and the EU respond to it differently? Well, I mean, they're, they're in very different situations. The United States is an exporter uh, of, of uh, energy, and this is wonderful for the U.S. They've seen uh, the price of oil and gas go up. Uh, that's been a, a net positive. Uh, they do have concerns about inflation at the pump. 
you know, obviously there's a lot of concern of what was happening at the gas pumps when uh, gas was above $5 a, a gallon. Uh, it has since come down. Uh, the people don't seem to make the connection between the fact that the U.S. has plenty of energy. It's just that it's selling it abroad at market prices, which goes to your, uh, my colleagues, uh, answer that you can't control the market. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you can try, but, uh, it just doesn't work. It's like, uh, trying to catch water in a sieve, you know, that it just goes in different directions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at this time, and, and Europe is a net importer. Uh, they are heavily reliant on Russian gas. Uh, they had these pipelines that they were doing, and as a result, they they really just don't have any good alternatives. Uh, the infrastructure is not in place for them to get lots of LNG, uh, and as a result, um, they are going to have a very, very difficult winter. Mm-hmm. And so, Dr. Joe, we've seen the oil prices retreating by more than 20% in the past three months. So what do you expect for the rest of the year, and what are the main factors decided I mean, if we're compared with the expectation at the beginning of this year, it is still in a very high position compared mm. with our expectation because we didn't ex- expect the economy will recover in such a uh, good speed. But actually, there are a lot of uh, factors, as you mentioned, the, 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 the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, also a lot of other issues have reduced the, the growth ability of the economy of the world. So when we're talking about the, the prices, I, I think that uh, it's a very complicated thing because it's not only something with the real economy. It has a lot of relationships between the, the commodity prices, the commodity markets and uh, the, the, you know, the futures, the financial markets. Some investors are trying to make profits by investing in the future prices of the crude oil. So in my imagination, I, I guess it will not going up any uh, for a very big jump in the in the rest of this year. Maybe it still have some some space to increase because the OPEC will do more if they cannot have a stable prices in the next month. Mm-hmm. So Aina, what do you think about the oil price? Is there any space to increase, or what are the main factors decided? Well, I, I agree with uh, Professor Zhao. I mean, this is a situation where um, OPEC is trying to maintain their interests by keeping uh, oil prices over you know a long period of time relatively stable. Remember, uh, they feel you know kind of during the times when they were literally having to pay people to take oil, no one was feeling sorry for them, and a lot of their economies are dependent on oil revenues. I think uh, Saudi Arabia needs a price of around. Uh, Sixty-five to seventy dollars per barrel in order to, you know, maintain, uh, you know, their their government spending and things like that. So keeping it at a hundred gives them uh, a nice cushion, um, and I, I would imagine that, that that's where they want to do it. They're going to adjust their output in uh, uh, as necessary as the recession comes uh, closer. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Joe, we've talked about oil, talk about the gas, and let's get a quick look on the currency. So what's the impact all of this having on the euro, which hit a record low recently? Yes, we are talking about the currencies that people may decide not to hold any kind of a currency that has been devaluated and will have a future devaluation prospect. Mm-hmm. So for e- euro, a lot of investors believe that the economy is, is suffered a lot and will be suffered even more in the winter when the winter comes. So I, I don't think that a lot of investors will try to hold the the shares or the investment in European market. 
But I still believe that it still depends on what the actions that EU will do in the future. If they can, they can change a little bit about the, the policies or trying to trying to return some of the, the policies like we see from the Hungarian government. They have benefited a lot by the cooperation with Russia and that helps them on the economy, on the supply of the energy and a lot of employment. Mm-hmm. So Aina, do you agree with Dr. Joe? And what's your view on the euro? Well, I mean, the euro is at a low, but so is the British pound. So the yen is also very low. It's, but, you know, yes, I mean, there's this huge sucking sound of, you know, uh, interest rate rises leading to higher yields. People are rushing to, quote, both the safety and the yield offered by the U.S. But, you know, there's a danger to that because once things start to unwind, if the uh, U.S. economy is weak, um, if there are problems with the, uh, the payment of the uh, deficit, uh, you're going to start to see people fleeing the dollar. Mm-hmm. And the question is, where do you go after that? So on a long-term basis, I think people have to be very, very concerned uh, when they're going to exit. Uh, I think you're going to see a lot of hedging going on as people say, I'm going to take a you know 10-year position and hedge uh, two years out so that uh, I don't get killed if things go bad. So I know there are some concerns over a possible slowdown in demands as the global economy cools and possibly sinks into recession. As such, we've seen the oil prices, you know, sliding in the past three months. But like you mentioned earlier, there is an energy crisis. And we know that there has been a lot of inflation this year and commodities have contributed to that. So the world economic situation is currently quite complicated, right? So what are the key dangers that could sink the economy well uh, right now it's it's overall demand you you know you start when you start saying there's 63 percent of the people in the united states uh, and that includes people who are you know in that two hundred thousand dollar bracket um they they um living paycheck to paycheck that means that uh, their increase in their wages is less than the increase in inflation that means every month they earn less uh you could start seeing you know credit card debt etc Now, as they pull back, uh, that means there's going to be less spending overall. So you're going to start to see this employment scenario start to change dramatically uh, as demand lessens. Um, Yes, there's this cushion of people who are spending their stimulus dollars, but those are limited. And once that's over, it's like a sweetener. There's going to be a hangover, and it's going to be quite severe. So that's on the U.S. side. The U.S. side is very important because 5% of the people consuming 20% of the world's GDP Uh, almost everywhere around the world, including Europe, all the advanced economies. And there's a multiplier effect because these are the uh, countries that consume a lot. So if they're not consuming, that means raw materials are not going to be in demand, uh, that, you know, uh, lower income economies, uh, developing economies are going to be very hard put. Not only do they not have enough money to afford what they need in terms of food and energy, but their base industries themselves will be losing revenue. So it's going to it's quite complicated. We're going to need a a little bit more foresight to try to get out of it. Mm. And Dr. Joe, so what do you think are the challenges for the world economy this year? I think that besides uh, and has mentioned about the differences in different economies, there will be some change in the ways we are developing or recovering from the pandemic and all the disasters because that we are trying to change the structure of our energy. As you mentioned about the energy crisis, sometimes that uh, it's something to do with uh, 
the crude oil natural gas, but we are depending more on the solar energy, on the wind and the different kind of new energy. I mean, that will change a lot of things, but they cannot change just overnight. So it should depend on what the governments are trying to do or what kind of emphasis they want to put in the market. The innovation is very important in this regard. And Dr. Zhou, I would also like to talk about the global trade. The IMF has emphasized two factors critical to the global trade. One is the appreciation of the U.S. dollar. So how do you see the impacts of this in the U.S. and for the rest of the world? And who will be mostly affected? I think that uh, the problem is not only the appreciation. If we have an expectation about the appreciation or depreciation, we may know what we can do. But the problem is that when we are trying to avoid the impact from the appreciation, we do not have many choices, especially for those Anna has mentioned about those in the debt. So for the for the especially for the, the poor people, they, they suffered a lot by the very high interest in the coming months and their income were not were not increased. If we just exemplify or uh, to make it in the economy level, so we may find that uh, the developing countries are borrowed, have borrowed a lot of money from the international market. So they have to pay more. If they do not have enough growth of the economy, they will suffer a lot by the by the credibility because that uh, their credibility will be lowered. I mean, for the ranks from the, the companies, uh, especially the standing and the pools or different kind of companies. Mm. And Aina, so the other critical factor is the outflow of capital. So investor appetite for risk is actually decreasing and they are likely to pull out of the emerging economies to you know, look for safe haven. So how do you see the future of a global investment for these two years? For the next few years, it's going to be very, very tough. I mean, it's not just that there are things. A lot of these uh, entities were using leverage uh, with banks, etc. So as a result, uh, they are going to pull in their horns. Uh, there's going to be issues with banks as uh, they're inevitably their defaults. People, uh, for every, whatever reason, they're illiquid. They can't either uh, you know, get a good price for their assets um, or you know, the assets have uh, dwindled because of lack of interest. So it's, there's, there's a kind of contagion that goes on. You remember the economic multiplier goes both ways. When it's on the upswing, it, it kind of helps everything. But when it's on the downswing, it does the exact opposite. And you know, right now, we lack uh, any kind of tools um, globally to address this. And that is really, to my mind, the most hurtful thing. Because mm-hmm. we could do a lot for uh, the developing world and even the developed world if we'd simply come together and just agree on a set of how we're going to uh, deal with this. Well, we're speaking with Ina Tangen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute, and also Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow at the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. After a short break, we'll take a look at the top 500 Chinese companies who is on the list this year. Stay with us. Hello, this is Michael Zhang. Greetings from Los Angeles of the Golden State of California. Thank you today for making me part of your team. I truly enjoyed the debates we had and look forward to many more in the years to come.
You are listening to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. China has published its list of the top 500 Chinese enterprises for this year. The total revenue of the top 500 enterprises has reached 100 trillion yuan for the first time, an increase of 14% over the previous year. State Grade Corporation of China, PetroChina, and Sanopec are the top three, with each reporting operating income exceeding 2.5 trillion yuan last year. And telecom giant Huawei is also on the list. Well, Dr. Joe, the list shows that over half of the companies come from the manufacturing sector. What does it tell us about the economy? It tells us that uh, the economy is uh, mainly are, are, you know, uh, consisted by the manufacturing. Actually, I, I think there's a kind of a trend that's based on the manufacturing base of Chinese economy because that we have so many manufacturers in in the market and they are producing a lot of uh, uh, pro, uh, different kinds of goods to connect a different part of the world. So they are trying to benefit from the the integration of Chinese market. We are trying to make it better for the better flow of uh, different uh, resources and factors in Chinese market and we are also providing them with better opportunities. So if you are looking at the economy, you may find that the economy is uh, are still growing when we are suffered from a lot of pressures. And if you are looking at the trade data is growing. So when we are talking about the, the you know, the size of the enterprises, it cannot just limit in the its original sizes. It want to be better to be faithful to the new situation. So it has to integrate it with the, the, the upstream and the downstream of the supply chains to, to be better accommodated to the situations nowadays. Mm. So Aina, so what does that tell you about the economy? I mean, you're comparing the US, Europe and, and China are apples and oranges. I mean, if you if you really want to look on, uh, you know, uh, first off, let's look on, on a production and a full market basis. Uh, both Europe and the US are complete pro- uh, markets in themselves, but they don't have the production. China is really uh, centered in Asia, ASEAN, etc. They have both the production capability and the markets uh, that are there. So there's a major difference. We just talked about uh, profitability expectations, also the cost of doing business in these uh, respective areas. So, I mean, it's apples and oranges. Uh, China is on the rise. It will continue so long as it uh, is able to be efficiently manufacture. Um, if, you know, no one's going to take over the space. Not, you know, it's not like the U.S. is going to say, oh, we want to produce clothing and sneakers and things like that. Well, you couldn't do that at the even minimum wages in the U.S. and be competitive uh, with anywhere in the, uh, you know, that's available in like Bangladesh or India or etc. Mm-hmm. And State Grid Corporation of China, PetroChina and Sanopec ranked the top three on the list. So, Dr. Zhou, can you tell us more about them? I think that uh, when we are talking about these giants, we know that... Uh, all of them are very heavy infrastructure-related companies. So it it, mean, it means that uh, they are helping the you know the spread of different factors in China, including the electricity, the the crude oil, or not the crude oil, the, the gas, and the different kind of resources. I, I think that uh, we are suffering a lot by the impact of uh, COVID-19-related policies. We cannot just uh, freely go abroad or just come in. So when we're talking about the manufacturing, so when we're talking about the supply chain, we need more to provide alternatives instead of just the interactions between the people face to face. So when we're talking about that, uh, you know, the, the dual circulation of Chinese policies, we are having uh, better positions to 
to to use uh, integration and uh, the size of Chinese market, which required more input from different kind of factors, including those of the electricity and the gas. Mm. And I saw Huawei is on the list, and the company founder Ren Zhengfei said Huawei needs to change its business strategy given that the global economy is at risk of recession and decreasing consumption capacity. So how do you interpret that? Well, I mean, he's sending a very broad signal. I mean, his daughter came out and she said, look, you know, it's, it's you know, within the company itself, uh, we are doing things uh, necessary to uh, streamline things. I mean, uh, last year I attended a uh, you know an open session online where they were talking about you know what is what is their uh, a strategy and it was really about more efficiency being able to produce uh, more powerful better consumer oriented uh, goods at lower prices in addition to the kind of backbone products and things like that but it was all about let's you know decrease the amount of energy that goes into it increase the amount of computational power. Uh, concentrating a lot on the software end of it, they've uh, become a big gainer in terms of uh, the cloud uh, and cloud services and things like that. And you know, they're still very, very much on the technological edge. I mean, they're the you know, Apple has been talking about for years that they would be the first satellite phone uh, producer. Actually, Huawei has beat them to the punch. Mm-hmm. So you know, they're still uh, able to do that. It really comes down to their ability to. Uh, pivot from just hardware to doing software uh, and and being very innovative. You know, remember they have this an incredible number of the best scientists from around the world in research centers all around the world, and they're not cutting back on that. They're continuing to look for the next thing as opposed to worrying about how to produce the old things. Mm. And Dr. Joe, so a global shortage of chips over the past two years has disrupted a, a lot of manufacturing, you know, industries. So what did Huawei do to cope with these difficulties? And uh, what do you think about the company's potential future? I think that uh, even for Huawei, this kind of company, they cannot just deal with the situation by itself. Because uh, the, you know, the, the original rules of the market has changed. They have to be adapted to the new rules. Actually, they don't have many choices if they want to continue as uh, leading companies in the market. So they changed some of the tracks to other areas, including the, the cars related in the, the autopilot driving system and all other rare areas. I still believe that uh, Huawei is a it's a company that is not always the leading company. It has struggled a lot for the past decades to get its position. So the key areas, the key uh, uh, benefits of them is not just based on what they have acquired. It depends on what they want to do. So they have trying to select it uh, uh, carefully about the destination, about uh, uh, kind of market they want to dip in. So that is something that I still believe that they have very strong potentials in the future. Mm. Well, we've been speaking with Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow at the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation, and also Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening.